Happy July and welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Akin Media. I am Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. And it's a special month. It's the middle of the summer, so we're still in a happy mood, I think, not quite ready. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. So we've got a very special episode for you. A long episode, too. So if it you're is taking, a long episode, uh, you know, if you're trying to while away those dog days of summer. Right. Or if you have a long holiday drive to the parents' mm-hmm. house, something like that, we've got a nice long listen for you. Sit on back, kid. We'll tell you a story. Yeah, exactly. Lots of stories about the study of popular music. This episode comes to us courtesy of Tim Anderson, who is at Old Dominion University, and he approached me a couple months ago. He wanted to do an interview and talk about some issues in popular music, and he had a number of interview ideas, and so we talked and said, well, Tim, go for it. You know, How about if you just take on an episode? Exactly. Just you know, come back to us when you got something. And so he did, and we're really excited what we, about what we have here. It's a Different for Acamedia, but I think that's a good thing. Difference. Yeah, it's a very good thing. And, and um, you know, it makes sense that you'd think that our sound studies and music studies folks would be well prepared to do a podcast right. episode. So, so Tim Anderson is a member of the Sound Studies SIG and SCMS. And so what he did was he talked to those folks at SCMS and talked about this idea of doing an episode. And he specifically then picked out uh, four members of the Sound Studies SIG to do interviews with and specifically on the topic of media studies approaches to popular music. So we've got four pretty different interviews here, but all united by that core of within media studies studying popular music. Yeah, we've got... Jeremy Morris talking about music formats and metadata. Mm-hmm. Brian Fateau is doing a, a piece on Canadian college radio. We've got Joan Titus, who uh, is studying Shostakovich. And then um, Nina Cartier, who is studying black exploitation soundtracks. So some really good stuff. Yeah. So each of these is, you'll hear an introduction, first of all, from Tim Anderson, describing what all you're going to hear today, and then intros to each of those speakers. So we are just going to sit back and listen. Take it away, Tim. Hi, my name's Tim Anderson. I'm an associate professor at Old Dominion in the Department of Communication Theater Arts in Norfolk, Virginia. And thanks for tuning in. You know, for the past 20 years, I've been studying popular music. In fact, you know, I actually don't say that. This is what I say. For the past 20 years, I've been studying what makes music popular. There, that sounds better. Why is that different? Well, that, that allows me to emphasize the thing that I'm most interested in, and that is placing a media studies perspective into popular music studies. A lot of people have tried to do that, and I think that some have done it very well. But one of the things I think we need to do is to put a shine on it and say, hey, look, perhaps we have to become more methodologically sound. Perhaps we have to debate more about how to do it. And perhaps we have to actually ask who is doing it and how they're doing it. And that's why I have those four guests today that I do. The four guests are Jeremy Morris, Brian Fateau, Joan Titus, and Nina Cartier, each of whom gave up their time to talk to me about what they're studying and how they're studying it, where they're studying it, what they're doing with it, and what their plans are. So sit back, and I hope you'll enjoy some of this. I know I did, and thanks a lot for tuning in. So my first guest for this podcast is Jeremy Morris. He's an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. 
And his new book came out last year, 2015. It's titled Selling Digital Music in Formatting Culture. So I, we talked a little bit about infrastructure as a, a way of thinking about popular music studies and what media studies could contribute. And we had a talk about metadata, that data that describes data. Uh, so um, I hope you'll, you'll uh, enjoy this, uh, this portion. And uh, we're off. Jeremy, where, where are you from? Originally, I grew yeah. up in, in Fredericton, New Brunswick, uh, on the east coast of Canada. And uh, and you did your training at uh, at McGill with Jonathan Stern. Yeah, I uh, guess I I went. To, I did my undergraduate in biology, and then left that to work in advertising for a bunch of years, and then went back to school, and ended up uh, yeah doing doing media studies stuff, and, and and migrated over to Montreal to work with Jonathan Stern. He was. Uh, somebody who was working on sound in Canada at the time that I was doing my PhD and seemed like the best fit. Well, uh, how, how did you uh, how did you get interested in media studies and particularly sound and and popular music? You know, I guess I was working in advertising and um, you know, like after my undergrad and before I sort of knew that there was a media studies thing that existed. Um, so I was working in advertising and I was also playing in a band at the time. Oh, and I started noticing. The ways that uh, bands were increasingly using tactics of branding and advertising um, to kind of market themselves. And I don't know, the literature about branding and music hadn't really been <clears throat> like it, it's common now, I guess, to talk about bands as brands. But back in the early 2000s, it was sort of still, at least in the music that I was listening to, like indie rock, it was still kind of shunned upon, you know. So I, I ended up going back to do a master's and I started studying the ways that different bands were branding themselves and, and different kinds of uh, ways that consumers came to understand music through the frame of branding. Huh, that's, that's really interesting. So it was, uh, it was through uh, this interesting combination of advertising experience and, and, and being in, in embedded within the actual uh, practice of, of putting out music. Right. Yeah. And I mean, just as a, a kind of aside, like I was playing around with musical technologies when I was when I was um, learning how to play music. And so it was neat to me that I went to a program where there was people writing about and thinking about, you know, the role of music technologies in in music production. So that's sort of how I got turned on to like popular music studies in general. Yeah. And that's uh, and, and of course, you're going to. Uh McGill at the time that uh, Jonathan Stern's doing his work on uh, on MP3, the work that subsequently becomes MP3. Yeah, yeah. So when I was doing my master's, um, there was a, a pop music prof at York, Rob Bowman, who I was sure. uh, took a class with uh, and got really excited about. But then um, <clears throat> when it came time to thinking about where to do my PhD and who to do it with, like because I had this interest in technology, in sound in music um uh, yeah jonathan seemed like the best fit and when i went to to meet him he was telling me about the mp3 project which was sort of just taking shape then he had just got a big grant for it so it seemed like a great opportunity to help him kind of do a little bit of research for that to work on some of my stuff which obviously overlaps with his a lot so uh yeah it was a really kind of an opportunity i couldn't pass up now i mean that's really interesting because one of the things that i see you know like uh Jonathan's work is in f- what he's often calling a format studies these days, and uh, 
I actually see your work and his work also building into sort of an infrastructural studies. And, and I might be wrong, but I, I, that's sort of the way that I viewed your work. I, I, would you, would you say that's correct or how would yeah. you correct me? Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, as I was writing out some responses to the questions you asked me in email, I realized like how much I keep coming back to those terms, organizational and infrastructural. Um, when you think about that term format, you know, yeah. just, how important it is in sort of shaping the way we come to understand the role of music in our lives. Right. And, and you, that's, you're explicitly, your, your book, your latest book, which is uh, actually, what's the title of? I know it came out last year in 2015. It's uh, uh, Selling Digital Music, Formatting Culture. Yeah. And it's uh, University of California Press, right? Yep. Yep. yep uh, brand new. So everybody who hears this, go, go order one for your library <laughs> and order one for yourself. Um, for your whole family. For really. your whole, yeah. It's a great gift. <laughs> They're always great gifts. Uh, <laughs> what, I, what I was going to say is, uh, you know, formatting is that, you know, the, one of the things I, I, I chatted with you a little bit before we talked was uh, formatting is a, is, a, is, a, is a big term within popular music studies, I think often gets ignored. Um, unfortunately, and I, I wanted to, to have you talk a little bit about how you understand formatting because I hear it as, as, as this sort of interesting tension between um, the, the way that one records and distributes popular music and, and genre. Yep. But I think that your work is actually bridging that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I probably lean more towards the like format in terms of technological format mm -hmm. than genre, but I think... Um, format and genre both do similar things at an organizational and infrastructural level, right? I mean, if we're thinking about genre, it's, um, you know, if we come to something as pop or we come to it as indie or as, you know, you noted when we were presenting at SEMS, you know, 80s music, you know, those categories, those genres, they, they give us these preconceived expectations of what to hear in the music. And it's those expectations where I think so much of the interesting analysis of popular music lies. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's partly what I was interested in when I was studying bands as brands. You know, again, it's kind of like shaping uh, and contributing to that, that process of here's how you're going to understand this thing before you even hear it. And obviously genre has, impl has implications, like if you're talking about format in that sense, it has implications for how artists market themselves, how industries organize themselves. So I don't know, it's just a term that allows you to get at a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of different things, even though, you know, shelf space is less important now than it was. The categories that we assign to music still matter, right? And they still play out even when we're looking at kind of digital music outlets. Right. I'd actually say that they matter more for a variety of reasons. It's, uh, right. that, that's partially what we'll get to because that's partially a discussion of metadata. But, uh, you know, I, I want to stretch this a little bit further because clearly when you're working with someone like Jonathan and his, his book, you know, MP3, and I, if anyone hasn't, if anyone listening to this hasn't heard, heard or read uh, Jonathan's book, uh, his second book, his first book is outstanding, but his second book, MP3, is I think uh, very pertinent to anybody who wants to think about uh, what format theory would be like. Right. Uh, so, like, how do you understand format theory? And, and you know, like, because I clearly you're working within that space. Right. Um, well, you know, I mean, from what I take from the, the book, it's, it's, it's um, you know, a technological format, but it's also the social stuff around how we listen, right? It's sort of format kind of governs uh, the rules, you know, like the technical rules and protocols for how, how we experience something. But there's also, there's also kind of more social protocols uh, around how we experience things. 
I, I, you know, I mean, when I think about different formats that music's available in, um, it's kind of this, uh, I guess, like embedded way to experience uh, the media. Like music is never just an experience of the sound, but it's all the things that combine to produce that sound, right? So for folks who like uh, to listen to records, you know, listening to a record is as much about the experience of playing that record as it is of the sound. And I think this is true of other formats too, you know, uh, what each format allows you to do and not do. I mean, I think back to, <laughs> I used to make mixtapes um, uh, when I was like going on a road trip with my parents or whatever. And because I knew the tape was going to be played in the car out loud, we had to edit out the swear words that were in some of the like hip hop. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I would like cough over, you know, when I was recording like Naughty by Nature. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> you know, but I mean, I think there's those yeah. those 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 uh, those processes. You know, I mean, like the different things you can do, which with each format, kind of really starts to tie into how you experience it, both on a technical level and in a, a, an affective level. Sure, sure. And I mean, I don't, I don't usually take a normative stance on these things. You know, I mean, I know there's some people who prefer some formats over others. At least in my writing, I don't, I don't tend to take a normative stance on it. But I'm interested in the way that, you know, each format kind of allows for these different sorts of encounters and interactions with music and what that means. No, I, I, th I think you're right. I mean, I'm a, I like yourself. I, I don't know if you are this way personally. I'm a, I'm a popular musical uh, pluralist. I, I subscribe to two streaming. Uh, uh, to, I subscribe to Apple Music and Spotify. I, I use YouTube. I, uh, I buy vinyl. I, st I still buy CDs. And occasionally I'll even download an MP3 legally. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of interesting. Like I've, uh, I've gotten to this point within my, my career. And each format has its, you know, to, to use a term that is, is uh, of the day, uh, has its affordances, yeah. right? Um, I, I particularly enjoy having this, this sort of a pluralism of formats. Yeah, I, I'm sort of uh, having a problem with the pluralism at the moment because <laughs> I can't like manage my library uh, in ways that, you know what I mean? It's, 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 I find I'm in a really weird situation now, not knowing where certain parts of my musical life and identity are. <laughs> Well, that's, that's, that's actually a good place to move in because, you know, uh, the, the issue of, of management, and this is some, where I first encountered your work, uh, was when, uh, you know, I, I was talking to somebody, uh, I think I was talking to Jonathan Gray, and they said, well, we've, uh, we've hired um, uh, Jeremy Morrison, and he does this work on metadata, and, and the red flag went up because I felt like, wow, I was the first, per you know, I not the first person, but I felt like I was the only person at the time that was doing work on metadata. I know you were, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, how uh, how did you get involved in that? Because there really aren't too many, I mean, you've actually published in it. I was just sort of working in it, and that and that led to me writing my second book. But how did you get, how did you get turned on to discussions of this? And by the way, uh, could you describe metadata to the audience and why why it's so important as part, it's the backbone of the digital entertainment right. economy yeah um yeah so metadata just kind of the information about the information that goes along with songs uh and i i guess i came to it i think through my dissertation i got i was trying to think about ways to do case studies of different technologies that were important in getting music from music on cds to music as digital files on the computer like i was interested in that process what happens when music leaves the cd and becomes this digital file on the computer 
Uh, and I was particularly interested in things that um, made it more usable on the computer, right? Because uh, I sort of lived through those early days of, of, of trying to like rip CDs onto your computer, you know, and you just have a whole bunch of track ones, track twos on, on your computer. And, you know, it wasn't really a very usable I mean, it was fun because it was something that couldn't have been done before, you know, and there was still a right. lot of neat and novel stuff about it. But like when I look back on it now, it wasn't all that usable. So I, I think I got really interested in this technology that uh, that sort of uh, I was looking at early technologies basically that made music kind of playable in different ways. And one of those was a, um, a thing. What was it called? It's called the Tune Base 2000, I think, is what I start that chapter with. Um, and it was this uh, this um, CD player. It was like a multi-changer CD player, you know, where you could put 100 CDs in. Right. But it connected to a TV screen that showed you what song was playing and when. And it showed you, like, you know, here's the title of the, the album. Here's the title of the name of the artist. You know, here's how long the song is. And that company that owns that ends up going on and buying another company called the CD Database. Right. Uh, and, um, and then the CD database becomes this big kind of background thing. Uh, sorry, I'm kind of getting ahead well, of myself. It becomes Grace Note, doesn't it? Yeah, it becomes Grace Note. And then, uh, it's, I guess now owned by Tribune. Right. Um, it was owned first by Sony for a long time. Um, but yeah, so just to back up. So, you know, if you were in the kind of mid, mid nineties, late nineties, you could put a CD into your computer um, but you know, early on in that decade, if you did that, like nothing would come up. It wouldn't show you what the name of the artist was or anything like that. Uh, a developer and a hobbyist kind of basically wrote a program that allowed, uh, CDs to be identified by the length of the songs and the number of songs on the CD. And it said, oh, okay, if it has this many songs on it and that many, it must be, you know, Radiohead's Kid A or whatever. Um, so the CD database gets bigger and bigger and becomes this thing that, you know, anybody who opens up iTunes or Winamp or whatever uh, can connect through. And, and it becomes the, the way that CDs become kind of playable on computers. Then when you get MP3 files, uh, there's a technology that evolves called ID3 tags. Mm -hmm. And those allow you to basically input some of that into the file itself. So these were just kind of, you know, infrastructural technologies for helping you sort and get used to and use your music in particular ways. But as it develops, it gets super complex, and it's now, you know, part of how you sort your your entire digital music library. If you have one on the computer or if you're using streaming services, they obviously rely on all this metadata as well. Right, and it, and it actually has, in some ways, hindered uh, some genres. I mean, the, the classic examples, classical music, mm -hmm. which are... are uh, you know the data. Honestly, the the metadata for classical music is just astoundingly poor. Right. Well, I mean, it's not built for it. Right. You have you have sort of um, categories that allow you to get the artist and the title of a song and the album. You know, but that doesn't work for a a, a musical form if there are, you know, say a whole bunch of versions of the same song. Right. Uh, like in classical music, where you like. You know, you like a particular suite or uh, a, a song, but you'd like multiple performances of it by different orchestras all around the world, right? Right, and, and where it was recorded, and who conducted it, and you know, who are the leads, and you know, it's 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 a it's a definite mess. And you know, I um, I'm I'm a 
I'm stunned by how poor the metadata standards are by comparison like to their to their importance because it it literally is now the backbone of how people are getting paid right yeah no I mean I think that's this when you make the move to these digital streaming services now so I mean we used to curate our own metadata right I mean if you had uh, yeah. uh, an iTunes library and you were a uh, a kind of music nerd, then maybe you would you would sit there and kind of, you know, try and make sure that all the metadata was perfect for all the things that you imported into your library, right? Yeah. Um, now we kind of hand that process over to these services like Spotify or Google Music, and they kind of do it for you, which is great for a lot of music consumers, obviously, um, but also causes some 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 problems in terms of thinking about like. Uh, ownership of music or can you tag it with your own comments all the things that you used to be able to add to, to the music now sort of gets provided by by the services sometimes and worse yet even in the case of Google about two three years ago I saw Tim Quirk who at the time was the head of Google Google Play essentially uh, the Google Music Experience yeah. and uh, he he openly not only admitted it he gave a lecture on how poor his metadata was Right. Like, you know, he, he uh, put up a slide of the Ramones and underneath it was pop. And he's like, look, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, Joey and, and would have loved to have seen themselves associated with pop, but nobody experiences them as pop. Nobody categorizes them as pop. So, you know, if you're searching for it, you can't find it. You can't play it. Well, the artist in their estate doesn't get paid. Right. Or if you have the wrong metadata in the background for, you know, a, a musical piece and it gets played but it's not indexed it doesn't get you know you, you won't get payments to the publishers or you know you won't get payments to the musicians through sound exchange so right. you know i think this question which is it's it's for we talk about it in terms of music is also in the background for a, a net you know netflix economy or any yeah. kind of streaming economy so oh, sure and i mean you, we're starting to talk about like two levels of, of metadata here there's the you know, the data that's assigned to the file or to the cultural object. Right. Uh, and then there's the, um, the the enormous amount of metadata that's generated just by our own use of these services, right? So, um, like you said, you know, every every kind of play, every thumbs up or thumbs down of a track, every stop, every uh, skip of a song, every repeat, you know, gets counted as, as part of... Uh, the, the algorithms that they go into to presenting you what you're going to listen to, watch, or read next, you know? Yeah. Well, no, this is it's exciting work, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing more of it, which uh, leads me to ask, so what's next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I actually, um, I mean, I'm still, I guess the, the book sort of ended um, with the move to cloud and streaming music services. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been doing a couple of, um, follow-up pieces just to kind of suss out what's happening with streaming um, because I don't think I fully addressed that in the in the book. So, um, you know, uh, Devin and I did an article where we surveyed four of the kind of emerging streaming music services, two of which I think are now gone or have been incorporated <laughs> into something else. So right, right. one of the perils of studying popular music uh, and digital uh, together. But yeah, so uh, and so I, I still I still maintain an interest in doing that. But uh, I'm sort of moving to looking at software now and apps, and in particular how different cultural goods um, become appified. I guess you know what happens to uh, bands when they decide to say release their album as an app. So I, I did a bit of work on Bjork and her album Biophilia, which was released as an app. It was sort of one of the big app. I guess Lady Gaga's done one as well. 
Um, and then I'm, I'm also just interested in apps in general, but again, some of the kind of infrastructural stuff, right? Like what are the categories that this new form of software is promoting? You know, how does that differ from the, the way that the software commodity has historically been sold? enough to get Brian Fateau, an assistant professor at Popular Music and Media Studies at the University of Alberta, to talk about his work on uh, student radio and local radio. It's, uh, it was a really nice conversation. We really got into some aspects of how radio, in taking a radio perspective, could help us understand something about popular music and what we as media studies uh, researchers could contribute to the field. So let's take a lesson. got Brian Fateau here. He's at the University of Alberta, right? Yep. Uh, what department are you in? I'm in the music department. Music department. Fantastic. And, uh, and uh, you, um, you're a new hire there, a new assistant professor, so congratulations. Thank you very much. And uh, you did your training at University of Wisconsin? I did a postdoc at uh, Wisconsin, and oh, okay. I did my grad work at Concordia University in Montreal. Oh, I guess I, I know you from Wisconsin then. Yeah, I think we probably first met when I was doing the postdoc. Yeah, and Concordia, that's great. So you did your postdoc at Concordia, or you did your training at Concordia, in, uh, was that in the Department of Music as well? That was actually communication. So this is a ah. media studies popular music position in the music department. And who did you work with there? Uh, Charles Ackman. Yes, I, I, yeah, I know Charles's work. That's great. That's fantastic. And uh, how did you get involved in, uh, in doing work on popular music? I always had an interest in popular music. I had some great classes in my undergrad at the University of Western Ontario in popular music studies that really helped to develop my interest there. So when I was looking at master's topics, I was kind of gravitating towards thinking about the way that music circulates, the relationship between popular music and radio. I was also playing in bands and was always curious about the different challenges facing independent musicians and then some of the avenues that uh, musicians could use for getting their music out there. Oh, fantastic. And so were you working with Kira and Norma? Yeah, I took classes with both Kira and Norma that uh, really helped to you know, get those interests going. Oh, fantastic. It's, it's really nice to see that, that you know, that's uh, one of the things that I always tell people. It's the only program that I know of that's really a critical humanistic take on popular music studies in North America. Yeah, it was excellent for that. That's great. That's great. And and you, where are you from in Canada? I actually grew up uh, outside of Vancouver, and then I moved north of Toronto for a while until I uh, headed off to Western, and then Montreal, and then Wisconsin, Toronto, and now Edmonton. <laughs> so it's, it's, okay, like a, you, from the from the West Coast, almost all the way back. Yeah, yeah exactly. but not but not quite, not quite. Not quite. Well, that's great. That's great. Well. Um, you know, I, I'm glad you wanted to talk. I, I know that you're interested in issues of community radio, and um, hmm. I wanted to ask you uh, why community radio, and what's that? Why? How do you perceive that? What kind of uh, impact that has for popular music? Yeah, great question. And again, as I started to think about you know some of the questions I was grappling with as an independent musician at a time when the internet was often talked about as the best way to get music out there as this alternative source for um, you know, distributing your own music and your work. I was more interested in you know, the institutional space of radio stations. I was curious about the network of campus community stations in Canada and how they work together. So I always had an interest in the sector 
as a musician and a listener. And then I decided that it would be fun to study it um, with my master's degree. And then I kept going and, and made a larger project uh, for my PhD dissertation, looking into the, the history of the sector and its relationship to local music culture. And, and so you, you started there and that was, that was your PhD. So what kind, of a, what kind of radio stations are you talking about, particularly like what, what were your cases? The ones I looked at the most closely, um, I tried to pick one that was smaller, one that was mid-size, one that was a little bit larger in terms of the um, broadcast range and the population that was perhaps listening, but also different geographic areas of the country. So I ended up, ended up going to Sackville on the east coast of Canada, a very small town with a, a small liberal arts college of about, I think, in total, when the when the students are in town, it's about five thousand. <laughs> and then I went to the kind of the center of Canada, as much as you can kind of do that. Um, and I spent a little bit of time researching CKUW in Winnipeg, so an inner city university, um, a station kind of serving that population. And then I went to Vancouver and looked at the station at UBC CITR, um, a more established campus, a little bit of a longer history there. Um, right. And, of course, a, a much larger population and then having the West Coast and kind of using some other cases to, to fill in some of the historical gaps. There had been a little bit of writing on community radio in Quebec because the provincial government had always kind of funded community media um, a little bit more substantially than in other areas. So I wanted to maybe get out of the Toronto-Montreal uh, markets and see what was going on outside of that as well. That's really interesting. So, like, you know... what. What did you find out that it meant to these communities, and particularly uh, the popular music communities there? Yeah, that's something that I thought was quite interesting. I was thinking on the one hand about CRTC policy and what do these stations have to do, what do these regulations mean in terms of what they program, versus you know, how are DJs or programmers or students connected to uh, the local music scene? How are they connected to the radio station, and how do those social relationships shape the programming of the station. And I found that each station did take a very different approach to programming Canadian music. So it wasn't so much about the centralized policy, but rather what sort of connections there might be in a given location. So on the East Coast, there was a lot more music being performed and played by students at the station because there was a higher student population there, a smaller town. Uh, the station was very much connected to um, different venues that maybe weren't venues initially, like uh, there was a roadhouse tavern that became a, a very popular spot for music. A lot of the individuals who worked at the station were active in programming music there. The station also programmed its own uh, music festival with a lot of uh, local bands. And then with some of the bigger city stations, there was a lot more of a, a community involvement, a community um, I guess, music program for the different cultural communities, for instance, a lot more people who weren't active students, maybe they were initially, but mm -hmm. kind of coming back and maybe they were programming very long running jazz and blues shows or uh, roots and reggae shows. Um, so I found that depending on the location of the station, its own history and the different connections it had established to other spots in a music scene really did help shape the type of music we were hearing regardless of the policies that said, you know, you have to pr program a certain amount of 
uh, Canadian music, a certain pro, uh, percentage of new music, and, and this sort of thing. So, and it really it wasn't about explicitly following CanCon. It was more like a, a station uh, policy that that actually had a, a, for lack of a better term, maybe a house style or a house programming style. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of programmers talked about how they would be meeting these quotas regardless, just given the nature of what the stations do and how they see themselves as being you know, important places for, for bands to get their start or for bands to maybe come and record an album um, and that sort of thing. Well, that's interesting. So, like, how are these, how are these stations funded? I mean, I, I know, like, I worked with student radio for years, and uh, some of it was, was through student fees, and uh, sometimes it would be, uh, like, a rogue group that would uh, just sort of, like, have a long-standing... Uh, a long-standing uh, commitment to to putting it on, say, uh, cable access at one point in mm-hmm. time. Uh, who, who funded these? Yeah, that's a, a very interesting question and one that can be a little bit contentious at, at times because a lot of the funding does come from student fees, so a certain pers- uh, percentage of tuition. And that typically doesn't pose a problem for stations that have a high percentage of students involved with the stations, but in certain markets where maybe the community participation is a little bit higher, sometimes you might have a student government that questions uh, the the fact that so much student money is going to the station, so they kind of have to vote on, on these issues, and sometimes that can be uh, problematic for stations. You also have money coming from listener drives and some money that's routed through um, Canadian Content Development Fund uh, from commercial stations, so a certain percentage of that goes to organizations like Factor, Music Action in Canada, but also now there's a community radio fund in Canada, and a lot of money is is rooted through that fund, and it's helpful for things like, you know, a one to three year project, perhaps, if you want to get a new show off the ground, do an interview series, maybe record a series of live uh, performances, but it doesn't really help as much for thinking about the longer-term sustainability for the stations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that student funding becomes pretty important, at least in the campus community sector, where the stations kind of serve two roles, both as a vehicle for uh, students to get involved, learn how to program uh, their own radio shows, um, but also a place for community members to get involved as well. Hmm. Well, let me ask you this, because this is something I, I hadn't really considered before we started talking right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, so you are in a music department. Yeah. And you might be one of the very few people I've ever met that's in a music department that's studying radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and you have a media studies background and a music studies background. I'm really curious about this. Like, how is this, is, is this a, a difficult trick for you to pull off? How do you justify this to, I mean, music departments are notoriously uh, conservative. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, um, a very... It's a very interesting position, and when I saw the call, it was, it was kind of perfect in terms of blending my interest in communications as well as popular music, music studies and kind of wanting somebody that also has a background in cultural studies. And I think there was a lot of interest in the department um, in terms of how music students, for instance, might use uh, media and use technology to, you know, get their own careers going, whether that's in a more conservative, um, you know, form or perhaps they, you know, take their music training and find themselves working in uh, a certain position in the music industry or with 
um, a certain cultural institution in Edmonton. So I think there was a, a strong interest in finding somebody that could, you know, talk about popular music studies, teach the, you know, the big classes on the history of popular music, but who could also, you know, help think about how a music department might use media and technology to, you know, showcase its own work or how students might think about uh, the larger media industries as places for, you know, employment in the future. So I'm looking at radio as a you know, vehicle for you know, getting music out there, for um, you know, taking the work of, of either students or other students at the, or for music students or other students at the university who might be involved with the Edmonton music scene and are curious about how you know, radio works or how uh, digital technology works or how music and radio are moving into digital spaces. And there's also a good... Um, history here of educational radio. There's a, a station that goes back to the late 20s that got started here um, at the University of Alberta with the goal of bringing the university to rural communities in the 20s and 30s. They programmed a lot of the music, depart the music department's work. So they would have you know, band, or I guess orchestras performing at the um, convocation hall we have here and that would be broadcast over the radio. So there's a long history of, of you know, music and radio coexisting here at the University of Alberta and in Edmonton. And now the station is downtown and does a lot of work with uh, local artists, artists in Alberta. That's that's a really fascinating legacy, and it's it speaks to something else. Like uh, I just got off the phone with Jeremy Morris, mm -hmm. and I, I and, and to me it's no coincidence that at least half of this podcast is dominated by people, uh, by Canadian scholars. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I actually don't think it's, I think that's, uh, the, the investment that uh, Canada has had in popular music studies is much, given the population it has compared to the U.S., is, is much more significant as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned. Um, and I, you know, uh, there could be other scholars that disagree with me, but I think if you just look like at, you know, from a media studies perspective, um, you know, the, the, my peers up there are, are uh, far and away more more engaged in popular music studies. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, I think that's I mean, it could be Jonathan Stern, Norma Coates, uh, Kira Cately, you know, uh, Will Straw, people like that. And Charles Auckland, although his work wouldn't necessarily be popular music, he has written about you know musical recording technologies. Oh, yeah. You know. Kay Dickinson at Concordia, who was hired there, she's done a lot of work in popular music. So I'm always like fascinated by the uh, by the Canadian um, embrace, if not uh, development of pop music studies. I, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but it's it it strikes me because it you know it took me years to really find a place here, and I, I've been doing this for about 20 years now. Yeah, and I think you know, going back to your your last question as well. I mean thinking about music departments as being a little more conservative traditionally, but there's a lot of people here who are, you know, working more in musicology or ethnomusicology who are studying things that are very similar to what I'm studying, whether that's the cultural history of certain local music or you know, the way that music has been a form of expression for different cultural communities here in Edmonton. So I'm finding the, the lines to, you know, be fairly... A fluid and porous between the different uh, sub-disciplines in the department and there's a lot of support here for each other's scholarship which I think is nice to see given that I had kind of always thought of a music department as somewhere where maybe you know, something like media studies or popular music studies wouldn't be as, as welcome so 
Um, and that could be part of the, the Canadian tradition of, of having a little bit more work being done in that area. Well, I mean, it's, it, it goes back to like, you know, somebody uh, clearly a, a dominant figure in Canadian, I think, popular music history, although many people might disagree, and that's Glenn Gould. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, his, his, his embrace of the record early on is, is, was, is, was substantial, uh, not only for classical music, but I think for the, the Canadian exp- and broadcasting. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a, a perfect example of how all of these different fields, subfields can kind of come together. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, and and of course, uh, you know, I can't believe I forgot Paul Tabarge as I was walking oh, yeah, through that. <laughs> you know, he's absolutely key, and and like I said, I, I find that that is something that uh, here in the states we could learn a lot from if we were to say what what is a what is a particular uh, distinctively different take on uh, media studies that uh, that Canada has offered us, and, and amongst the many, I think one of those is is the way in which popular music has always been part and parcel of it. Oh, of course, and you know it could just be the, you know, the way in which there's been a lot of attention being paid to music as a, a form of constituting cultural identity, whether that's through radio, television, um, through something like Canadian content uh, contributions, all of these things. I think that just also shapes the scholarship that's being done um, at our educational institutions too. I mean, that said, it's still rare to see you know job calls that. Um, put music front and center. I think since I've been a PhD student or on the market, I've maybe seen two or three in Canada and, and this position's one of them. You know, you get some that still mention music industries or popular music studies, but um, there's still a challenge to find a place to do that kind of research too um, and, and to have it seen, to have it be viewed as important as you know, some certain other areas as well. That's fascinating. So, so let me uh, ask you a couple more questions. I can let you go because uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But one of the, one of the things I wanted to talk about here was, uh, and I think that we've sort of hinted around this, is this idea of, of radio, particularly within your scholarship, but also within. Uh, well, I mean, it's within all scholarships, but I but I particularly see it within the, the what you've just said here within the Canadian context is key to any kind of popular music ecosystem. Oh yeah. And I, I wanted to, to ask if, 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 you know, what would it be like if you were to rethink, um, you know, popular music studies as one that's involved in, a, in an ecosystem and, and, and perhaps radio is part of a popular music ecosystem? What, is, what does that mean for someone like you? Or maybe that's what you're doing already. Yeah, I mean, I think that's somewhere I eventually ended up going with, with looking at the campus sector. It was an interest that developed because I was hearing new music through this sector and I became interested in how this sector existed and you know, how it was funded and how music got there and how music was programmed. But I started to also realize that there were you know, very important ways that stations were you know, connected as though they were an ecosystem in a locality. So the social relationships that uh, were fostered by stations, the awareness of certain programmers or hosts about you know, venues, whether they be sanctioned, legal, places <laughs> to perform music, or underground venues or house venues, places that can become pretty important for, you know, in Vancouver, they were facing a lot of new developments, um, a lot of, you know, vague laws around noise and the sale of alcohol. So a lot of performances were, you know, in illegal warehouse spaces or in venues that were only around for a couple of weeks. And, you know, programmers knew about these things. They could be 
important resources for programming shows in Sackville. They would design and print show posters for touring bands. Um, so there's all these ways in which stations are also institutional spaces that can become very important for new local independent musicians or you know non-mainstream artists working um, with different you know types of music that maybe aren't heard on the commercial or, or public sector as much. And I think that started to get me thinking about you know the importance of a spot on the FM dial, not only because you know I think it's important to have that diversity on the airwaves, but also to help maintain and justify the the space of these stations. So having you know, places to record a record or to perform live or for pe people just to congregate and talk and, and work through issues that sometimes independents or, or smaller bands uh, face. Mm. So, you know, these stations are, are rooted in very interesting ways to the, the cultural history of a, a locality or a music scene. Um, it's not just, you know, listening to the programming and, and hearing how many, you know, artists of a given genre are, are programmed or not just thinking about the business models of different stations, but you know what sort of social connections are there? How does taste factor into the way that music is uh, programmed? How is taste developed? You know, by alternative or independent media institutions, these sorts of things. Because people aren't always compensated financially. These are often volunteers that you know the reward is the ability to kind of bring your personality, bring your own tastes to the institution, and have an outlet for expressing that. Right. Right. Now that's uh. That's certainly the case with uh with with community radio. It seems that they, obviously you have to finance it, but most people are there because they they want to be they want their themselves and the, the things that they represent as part of the community, and that makes perfect sense. For sure, and I think it was when we were at the um, radio preservation task force conference, just how many people all kind of got their start um, with you know college or campus or community radio, and how that really helps to develop. An interest in in larger questions about media and communication and technology. No doubt, I you know that's that's where I started. I uh, you know I, I started uh, doing work uh, with the student radio station that was uh, like I, I think I hinted at it was actually cable access only. And then uh, oh, yeah, yeah it, it, I did work at a uh, University of Arizona. I was one of the you know I, I did DJ and stuff like that. And then I for a year was the like like uh, a lot of people the sort of the 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 president or the chair of the student radio station, and then when I went to uh, W, when I went to Northwestern, I was the graduate liaison at uh, WNUR, and, uh, and I've, I've worked with uh, student radio off and on since wherever I've been, uh, whether it's teaching. And it is fascinating to see, like just like you said, you know, when I look at WNUR and I think of uh, the way that it's it's projected people into the cultural industries, it's it's a uh, it's not the sole force, but it's certainly an integral force, and and, uh, and it's something I think we undervalue. I often tell people, like, look, uh, you know, you work in student radio or community radio, you're probably, you may not work in professional radio, but you might work for a publisher. Mm -hmm. You know, you might work as a musician, and you might work as a music critic. Uh, one of the most prominent American music critic, pop music critics working today is Maura Johnston. She's out of Boston, and she... She was a WNUR staffer for many years, so you know, yeah. and, and and that's just one example. So, you know, it's it's interesting to think that way, like the, that it's, it becomes this key portion of a of a musical ecosystem. That if you took it away, then perhaps 
uh, you know, you you don't get these. You know, it's it's hard to say that it's a causal source, but you, mm. but it certainly is an uh, it's tremendous influence. Oh, absolutely. Well, good. I, I didn't want to take up that last part. If, if, if just sort of talk, but uh, no, is there anything else you want to say before we get going? <laughs> no, I think we covered a lot of really interesting stuff there, and I, uh, I think this is a great idea for for the podcast to just feature you know a variety of research in sound and sound and music. It's it's excellent. Well, thanks, thanks. Well, you have a great day, and I hope uh, I get to see you soon. Yeah, same to you, Tim. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. So one of the really nice things about working with the Sound Studies Interest Group is you get to meet a lot of people who you really have no reason to meet before or ever. And one of those people is Joan Titus. I I didn't know her work before she got involved with the the group, and and I've been introduced to some of it, primarily her work on Dmitry Shostakovich and his early film music. And here we get a chance to talk to her while she's in Russia, researching for volumes two and three of her uh, of her of her books on Dmitry Shostakovich and his film music. She's already published one with Oxford, and it was a pleasure talking to her. So I hope you're going to enjoy the conversation. How you doing? I'm okay. You, very tired. Well, well, thanks for doing this. No, no, of course. I'm happy to do it. It's just been it's been rough. It's just been a lot of work here. So, well, so what, what are you up to? Uh, and by the way, we're recording already. And this is Joan Titus of uh, uh, UNC. Uh, was it UNC Greensboro? Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're recording. So uh, uh, right now, just make certain we get this going. I like to keep it kind of conversational. So. Okay. <laughs> where do you, where, you're in Moscow. You're in Moscow, not Idaho, but Russia. Yep. What are yeah. you doing there? Archival research. On? Uh, a couple more books on Shostakovich's film music. So, and you already have one book on Shostakovich's film music, and uh, that just came out this year, right? Mm-hmm. Came out in March. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm already back uh, to Russia and doing more research. It basically, I'm... Um, that book ended in 1936, and he wrote film music until 1971, and it was quite a few film scores. So I'm doing like two more um, volumes. It's kind of a trilogy on his on his film music, and it's the middle book is actually a, a, going to be about around almost 20 films. So it's quite extensive in terms of research. How did you get into this? How did I get into? What, Russian music or just musicology or any of it? All well, of it? film music, uh, musicology, any of it. Yeah, what, how did you get started? Where, I mean, I know that you, uh, we share a lot in common. You're from uh, Tucson. I'm from Arizona. Went to U of A. Did you go, you went to U of A too, right? University of Arizona. That's right. And uh, how did you get into film music? Well, I've, I come from a family of, among many things, artists and musicians. And uh, I started like my sister and I both started drawing very young because our dad was an artist um, more casually. And so, and in music, of course, was something I always um, really wanted to do and did do. And so I pretty much did it all my life. And then when I got to college, my areas were in, focused in music history and violin performance and um, art history as a minor. And I sort of just followed through, I guess, with the visual and aural connections. And it sort of led eventually to film music. And I didn't even really 
at the time it was even happening, I didn't even know sometimes it was happening. It, had, it took a few people to kind of point out to me that that was where it was going. Hmm. Um, and by the time I got to grad school, you know, I had uh, two areas in addition to musicology and film studies and in Slavic. And so I very seriously pursued those areas alongside music. And it sort of just pushed me into film music eventually. So. And you went to uh, the Ohio State University, right? Yes, Ohio <laughs> State University. <laughs> that was for grad school, and you worked with, uh, I, I remember one of the people you worked with is Arvid Ashby, right? Yes, and I worked, Margarita Mazzo um, was my advisor, and I definitely, uh, definitely took classes with Arvid, and yeah, he was a good friend. So this is a good time to ask a question here that's a little controversial, and uh, and, and then we'll we'll flip back to this because uh, you know one of the things about musicology is that it seems like film music has never really fit fit really tightly into it as far as I, I can tell, and and uh, musicology is notoriously conservative. So how is there room for film music, let alone popular music studies in traditional musicology, and and, and who's making those connections besides yourself? Well, um, actually, there's been there is a popular uh, music study group in the AMS, the American Musicological Society, and the Society for Ethnomusicology, as well. So there is like a contingent, um, however small it might be, um, and there has been interestingly uh, a rise of interest. I guess it's more. I think film music, in, in my view, in musicology, has gone from becoming a kind of peripheral fetish to um, a trendy thing to do. And so now um, there, I hear from lots of people who are not terribly serious about writing about film music. They just want to write a film music paper because it's cool. Um, and they might. And that's kind of one contingent, which is, you know, interesting. And then there's another contingent of people that are, you know, very serious and write dissertations and books and, and are very dedicated to um, music and, and visual media or audiovisual media um, broadly. So, uh, you know, I think the people that I uh, consider... Uh, who have been doing it longer than me, who are very serious, people like Jim Bueller, who's, I guess, technically in the music theory side of things, and, um, you know, Daniel Goldmark, and who's done great work on cartoons, and, and Neil Lerner, who's done work in, seems like, everything, uh, in music and, and, and visual media. So there are quite a few people who've, who are, you know, further along and older than I am who've been doing this well for some time. So I'm setting the stage. I'll have to remind uh, Daniel that he's older. Well, <laughs> I was trying not to put it that way. <laughs> he's hardly that much older. <laughs> no, but uh, he, he's he's uh, he's a good good colleague, colleague and a good friend. Actually, I've I've known him for years, and it's always been at this intersection of popular music studies and uh, and SCMS. And you know, it's it's interesting for you to because I, the way that we met was through a paper I wrote years ago on early like film music and early cinema, and. Um, and uh, he he really connected with it, and it was it was very it's a really nice compliment. Uh, but I I um, you know the way that I've always come is I'm interested in what makes music popular, and and I thought that film music was uh, was a place where definitely there could be the 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 pop obviously has been the popularization of of a quote unquote classical Western classical music. Uh, I mean, did did Shostakovich view it that way? Was there sort of an emphasis on on popularity of his music or? Uh, how how do you intersect with that? Well, this is this is a, going to be a fairly tangled answer. Let's do we're it. Talking about, <laughs> we're talking about somebody who um, came of age and, and spent his life um, working in the Soviet Union, and right. so you know he was born in 1906. Um, and as he was, he came of age, you know, in his conservatory years in the 1920s, which, like in the United States, was kind of a roaring 20s in Russia. 
Um, really, you know, they had everything being imported and, you know, to some degree exported as well. So film was really coming up into its own at that time. And uh, all kinds of music experimentation was happening at that time. So he really kind of um, was lucky in that he got exposed to so many different kinds of trends and styles. And he learned how to write for everything. And he had, I think he's an interesting person because he has this extreme, um, this great ability to be so fantastically versatile and be able to move between, kind of seamlessly between styles and, and genres and so forth. And he was also just somebody, in my opinion, and I write this in my book too, um, who was just inclined towards the imagistic. He just really liked to illustrate things uh, with music. And uh, so, you know, it doesn't really surprise me that he was a good opera composer. He's, his first uh-huh. opera is in, you know, the mid to, to late 20s with the Nose. And that, that opera actually piqued the interest of film directors. Um, some of the first people he worked with, Kosensiv and Grigori Kosensiv and Leonid Traubert. And so it, he kind of got sucked into the, into the film music thing, actually in the late 1920s. And, um, you know, it was kind of, as I explained in my book, kind of coincided with the Len Film Studio in Leningrad at the time, Leningrad Film Studio. They wanted to um, hire a composer of international repute, and Shostakovich at 19 had developed an international reputation with his first symphony, and he was inclined towards the Imagistic, so it just sort of worked out. Okay. Um, so his first film score was for the New Babylon, or Novi Babylon, uh, in 1928-29. He worked with Kwasinski and Trauberg, and from that point forward, he was just in. He was in. You know, he couldn't kind of escape uh, in some ways from from doing film music and over time you know he did another completed another opera and did it tried to start a few others that didn't really take off for various reasons um, but really ended up writing quite a lot uh, almost I think sometimes it seemed almost like too much um, in the 30s and 40s and into the 50s and then kind of tapered off um, into the 60s and his last uh, film scores in 1971 with Kozensev actually uh, for King Lear Shakespearean adaptation and so um, he had, you know, he wrote at, at least completed um, 34 film scores, and there are lots of others that were not completed, um, and lots of his music was then taken um, from his symphonies and kind of compiled for other very famous films like Battleship Batyomkin, for instance, of Eisenstein, mm-hmm. and so forth. So, um, you know, he sort of got moved into it. He, I think he was someone, someone who was actually very inclined towards um, writing a certain way and then kind of got sucked into uh, film music culture, so it all sort of worked out um, very well in that sense. And he, and he's somebody who's always been, you know, like, well, throughout his career, was very, very popular um, in many genres. Um, and I think, I, of course, it has to do with reception and politics and so many other things. But I think musically too, um, he had a way of being very appealing um, to audiences. And you kind of dovetail that, you kind of combine that with this Soviet notion of intelligibility, which is coming about. This kind of watchword that's coming about and. Um, the late 1920s into the 1930s, and they're looking to kind of popularize the idea of the folk or the popular um, in a very specific, rigid um, way, as you probably know. So that well, all sort well, of combines. I can't, I can't say that I do know, but I, I, w- one of the things that I am interested in is this sort of competing notions of, of popularity, and obviously, you know, the, the Soviet uh, take on socialist realism as a, as a kind of a, a prescribed popularity, or you know, for for, uh, for to spread the Soviet ideal, or you know, how we talk about popularity in the United States as opposed to folk is is uh, 
are two different things in, in depending on, on what kind of context you're in. So utilizing the, the technology of, of film music and, and, uh, and uh, loudspeakers and, and, and that sort of thing as a kind of massification of a, of a music, a sort of way in which it, it's able to move is, is something that I'm always interested in hearing people theorize. And I was wondering if, if in fact, he was either part of that theorization, uh, was uh, caught up in, in that uh, in that kind of theorization, or just sort of didn't didn't really write about it. In terms of him writing about music, um, in with New Babylon, he actually did with the premiere of it. He did actually write an article hmm. about how important it was, and it was not just um, necessarily the notion of the popular, but how important it was to write good music for film. And he said that, <laughs> of course, this is a value system right away that's coming to play. Um, he he said, you know, there have been all these compilation scores for so many years in Russia as there have been in other places. And kind of hackneyed bits, he said, kind of holtura, which is the Russian for like, kind of like trash, put together very rapidly and not very thoughtful. And he thought, and he wrote this article about how this is how I would, I have done it in New Babylon. I've tried to write something that's more specific that really engages the image a certain way. And he always, from what I, I know, tried to find a space, you know, a mutual space between music and image and believe very strongly that music should be well-suited and one should know what cinematography is, one should know what film is if you're a composer. Uh, and so, and that, some, some of that might just be, you know, him speaking to the idea of the popular and again in the Soviet uh, sense of kind of meeting the tenets of socialist realism. Um, some of it, though, I, I would contend actually is genuine. I think he really was trying to write well for the cinema, and he took it very seriously. And there are some, some scholarship going on right now, actually, in Russia, some people I was just speaking with, um, who said, you know, they very much believe the same thing. That he sometimes he's even taking music from his films and recycling it in his symphonies. So it wasn't necessarily that, you know, composers write for a symphony and then maybe recycle something in a film. They were actually going, he was actually going the opposite direction. And so I think he did take very seriously this kind of reach of, of uh, cinema and kind of the audiences that he was trying to, um, to entertain and appease. And I think that um, was a serious form for him. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, he wrote about it a little bit here and there, but the closer, the more that we get into um, high Stalinism, the harder it is to kind of analyze some of those writings because <laughs> it's difficult to know. Um, who's writing them, for one, and, and how coerced he may or may not be into doing so. Right, how genuine he would would have been, because I, I can imagine, you know, uh, living through that period of time, it, there, there's a... Uh, uh, the party line is is above all, and but everybody knows that and sort of whites writes with a wink, I would imagine. So, well, good. And so, like, where where you uh, where are you getting this information? I mean, just kind of curious. How did you uh, you're you're in the archives? Where are the archives for you? Well, uh, pretty much in in Moscow and Petersburg, and there are some other places too. But there are major state archives in both cities, Urgali, um, which is the Archive Historia Skuspa, so the uh, Russian State Archive of Literature and Art, and also the similar version of that in Petersburg called Sigali, um, and also some private archives, a private archive and some other state archives here. The Glinka Museum is a museum of musical culture, which is pretty great, and they have an archive as well um, of a lot of manuscripts of, of very famous Russian composers, including Shostakovich. And then also the Shostakovich Private Archive, which is run, um, which is run by uh, Irina Shostakovich, the widow of Dmitry Shostakovich. And so I've been working in all of those places for this trip, and I work in some other places as well. 
um, just trying to, you know, get a sense of <laughs> process primarily, compositional process and understanding how fil- film teams work and how Shostakovich um, works with uh, directors and, and sound designers and so forth. Well, this is a good place to ask this because, I, again, you know, um, I'm not trained in musicology. I would never call myself a musicologist. There, there have been times where somebody drunkenly called me that, and I was like, I, I don't think I am. But I think I see myself more as a media studies person. However, mm-hmm. you're you're definitely a musicologist, and and I say that in the best sense. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't have anything bad about it. I mean, I've I've talked to people who are actually musicologists who are just like, oh, I don't. I have a real problem with the field right now, but that's that's a conversation for a different time. Right, and I, and I, I'd like to know, like, how does a musicologist connect with media studies or film studies, and like, what does musicology bring to the table, and what do you take from media and film studies? I think it's just a matter of, for me, I'm just trying to understand where where people are coming from, disciplinarily speaking, um, what's important for everyone, and the two, I, I think. Maybe I should start <laughs> by talking about some of the blinders that I think we both have from each side, and sure. or just, really more just difficulties, not so much blinders. I think there's lots of good intentions going around in most cases, and maybe not in others. But um, but I know I've had some media studies people who identify more with media studies say to me, "Well, you know, I, I just don't, you know, I don't really do music. You know, it, it's it's and it really when I kind of ask, well, what do you mean by that? You know, they end up saying something to the effect of, well." You know, it's all that, you know, theory and, <laughs> and the classical music sort of um, perhaps perceived elitism or something that feels like a block to actually engaging um, with the field in some fashion. And that's a shame because, you know, I can totally see how that would be the case because you know, most musicians, when they get to college and are majoring and getting a Bachelor of Arts in Music, have been training since they were five or seven or eight years old on their instruments. So there's a whole lot of presumed... Um, musical, at least a certain kind of musical culture that comes with um, even early um, undergraduate training. Oh, and so I can oh. totally see how how anybody outside of this so-called kind of classical music world would be totally intimidated by by um, by musicology in that sense. It does presume a lot of um, kind of musical experience. That said, I've met tons of musicologists who, who don't necessarily have a background in performance and, and um, come from a different kind of subculture um, musically who are quite wonderful and brilliant. So it's really you know, not something that, you know, is necessarily required, but it's kind of been a, a kind of quiet culture for a very long time. So I could totally see why someone outside of music studies might be a little shy about entering a field that has these sort of presumed expectations. Um, from the musicology side, and one of the things I see that I've always um, been pretty vocal about is it. And this even goes back to some of my grad school um, study where I really wanted to make sure I had strong areas and a strong study in, in films and media studies and also in Slavic. And at one point, one professor said to me, who remain unnamed, well, why are you bothering with film studies? You can just look at a film and, and listen to a film and do the music and it's not a big deal. You don't need to know anything. <laughs> and, and, I, I thought, <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm in grad school. <laughs> I know. I was like, this doesn't seem like a good idea to me. And so I, I, I thought I really want to take as much as I can in art history, and because I love it anyway, and in, in film studies, because I want to know um, what that discipline, what's important to that discipline, and where it's coming from, and what sort of ideologies drive that discipline, so I can speak to the people in that discipline about music, um, and about where I'm coming from, so we can make some sort of connection. Oh, and so oh, okay. I, I felt that's why I started that, that mission in grad school, and I say it to everybody I meet in music, 
And what I sometimes see is some resistance in musicology from people like, oh, yeah, I don't really care. You know, I, I think I'd rather just, you know, do a one-off paper and end up doing a, some, you know, representational analysis of a film score that's really um, perhaps musicologically interesting but not really at all engaging with the literature, the discourse, and, and film studies, much less, you know, general media studies. So it's a shame. I think some of it, I feel like it, it should it should be easier for musicologists because what we, at least as far as I can see, we can go over and read all the stuff in English, a lot of it, even in other languages. And it seems very accessible, but I imagine it would be harder to go the other way for media studies to go straight into music with all that kind of jargon expectation of a musical background that would seem um, scarier, but maybe I'm just, um, you know. I think you're right. Because when I, th- when I think about like going to uh you know, like some of the popular music conferences that I go to and, and running into classically trained musicologists. And the first thing, you know, they're talking about an ostinato. And I'm like, you know, I know that's that's common lingua franca for for people who were trained in, in performance, but I, I wasn't. I In fact, my approach to, uh, to uh, the training was uh, some classical guitar as a kid, and then I'm pretty much self-trained from then on. So, uh, you know, blues and rock and that sort of thing. And, and I'm not you know, these are these are terms that don't mean much to me, but uh, I feel you know if I could pick up a book by someone like uh, Steve Waxman on the guitar, and and I have no problem, and you know, or maybe even Rob Walzer, but I don't. Uh, it's hard for me to go into the to the deeper literature that's uh, that comprises your field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can I can see why because it has a certain I wouldn't say narrowness, but a certain kind of specificity in a certain in, in classical music specifically. It's not to say there isn't again a pop music studies contingent. There is, and there are also people who are in so called classical music who played instruments all their lives, but never actually didn't have initial degrees in musicology. So, and they end up being sort of a little bit outside as well. So I think it's it's a little bit. Um, intimidating, and so I, I can see why people from media studies may have had a, a, been a bit more cautious about entering musicology and music. But in my opinion, musicologists should know better, and we I think we should um, definitely because you know I feel like film studies is a lot more open, um, and it's also a younger field too, and it's more and not more interdisciplinary, but it's definitely interdisciplinary um, and very accessible. Maybe that's just the way I see it. Um, having a, tried to make more of an effort to to get to know what's going on in that side of things. Well, I mean, we hope you continue to make that effort because you know it's it's not only you part of the the, the your uh, the co co chair of the sound studies uh, interest group, but uh, that I think your work could be very very useful for for not only uh, Soviet scholars and film scholars and music scholars. I mean, there's a lot there, and uh, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to reading it uh, when I get my hands on a copy of your book. But uh, it, it sounds like the kind of thing that that we all need. It's sort of a prescription for for trying to understand a different approach to what film music is, what it what it was thought to be and and uh you know what how this is a kind of popularization of a of a style that at least at one point in time was uh that had uh internationalist ambitions. So, you know, the, these are this is a very important work. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm, yeah. I'm, I hope so. I'm I'm I think that we're starting to see a generation coming up in musicology that's doing this. So, that's actually very exciting. And I hope that um, that continues. <laughs> yeah, I hope so, I hope so too.
Speaking of people that I don't think I would have ever met without the Sound Studies Interest Group is Nina Cartier. Nina is a uh, PhD candidate in the Northwestern University Screen Cultures Program, and she does work on black exploitation. And, and frankly, the reason I met her was because we were drinking at a Sound Studies Interest Group event, and we started talking about black exploitation. And, and next thing you know, I said, why don't you be part of this interview? And, and she, she said, yes. So we talked for about 40 minutes. I had to edit some out, but you get 25 minutes of really good stuff of her talking about approaching black exploitation from an oral approach first rather than a visual approach and what that gets you and how that, that makes you think about reception in different ways. And I hope that you're going to enjoy this conversation. I know I did. I had a blast. So here we go. After a number of technical difficulties, we have Nina Cartier back on the line. And uh, Nina, thanks for being here. And thanks th- for having me. And thanks for acting as if this is about the first time we've, we've done this. So. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, the conventions of recording. So uh, you're ABD at Northwestern, and uh, you're working on your dissertation. What's your dissertation on? My dissertation... Um Focus upon black exploitation. I use those as case studies. So, you know, those great movies like Shafts and Foxy Brown and Superfly. <laughs> I work on those. I figure if you're going to be up till like the wee hours of the morning, you better have a rocking soundtrack. <laughs> and black exploitation does it for me. And I use them as case studies to look at how, you know, uh, the changes in time and space that movies kind of uh, evinced after black exploitation came to be, um, were really important and kind of transformational in those times. So I kind of look at those changes and use black exploitation as case studies. Oh, that's that's really interesting. And and, uh, and you were telling me earlier that you got your uh, your your uh, undergraduate at Arizona State. Yeah, I'm a bachelor's of fine arts in photography. Um, Lots of my friends ask me, because I'm, I was an art student, if I make movies. And I tell them, well, I'm a professional photographer, but I don't make movies. So I do <laughs> like to watch them, but I don't make them. <laughs> you don't make Well, so, so what got you interested in this topic? You know, it kind of started back in undergrad. I had a great mentor who was then the director of uh, the School of Fine Art, the Herberger School of Fine Art, uh, Julie Cadell. And um, I was an honors student. I was in the honors college. And the only way to be an honors art student was to take like the higher level classes, right. at least at that time. So I found myself like as a freshman and sophomore in the, the 400 level, you know, senior and graduate level classes, like critical theories of visual arts and stuff. Um, and they were great. I did a really great job in the class, but it was really eye opening very early on. And so all of the theory stuff, which I love, um, and all the different ways of engaging critically visually were really exciting for me. And I found out like the photography theory wasn't asking the same questions that I was interested in. And so I started with the film theory and doing more with representation and moving images. And it really just kind of grew out of there. My honors thesis was on um, black women and black exploitation, as well as my master's thesis that I got at um, University of Chicago. And who did you who did you work with at uh, at ASU on film theory? Was or was that more of a Chicago thing? Um, you know, oh goodness, I forget one of my teachers. Goodness gracious! I mean, I worked with Julie Cadell. Okay. Then too. Um, and a couple of other people whose names slipped me right now. That's okay. Sorry. That's... Um, and at uh, University of Chicago, I was working with um, the late, great Miriam Hansen and yeah. Tom Gunning and yeah. Jim Lastra and, and Ron Gregg. They were great. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's, that's, it's, it's a definite constant. I, you know, uh, Gunning uh, was on my committee and was one of the, the, the most influential uh, the people I got a chance to work with. And, 
I'm glad to see that he's, uh, I mean, I knew that he'd continue to influence people. That, that seems to be a given, but I'm glad you also got a chance to work with uh, uh, Dr. Hansen. I never got a chance to work with her. I, I got to see her speak many times, though. Yeah, she was really influential in the way I, I see things and me thinking through things. And, you know, she pushed us really hard, but oh, yeah. lots of great work came out of that. Yeah, that's great. And, and so, you know, uh, typically what's, what's interesting about the, the, Chicago, uh, the Chicago influence there is you have Lastra and his work in sound studies. And Gunning, mm-hmm. you know, Gunning was on my committee and I did work on popular music. But I wonder, like, how did you, how did you get interested in popular music? Is it simply because of the, the soundtracks? You know, um, I want to say that the soundtracks are really formational or okay. foundational in, in me really looking at um, pop music uh, more in depth. One of the things that always bugs me about black exploitation is that people tend to really ignore the soundtracks. And you really can't have black exploitation without black exploitation music, yeah. without that kind of soul aesthetic. You right. can't really have the songs. I mean, there. I remember... Um, and part of my orals defense years ago, I played um, a clip of like Shaft when someone right. put like a romantic score behind. Someone did that on YouTube just kind of for fun. And it <laughs> totally changes the whole movie. Even just like 30 seconds, it was like, my God, what horribleness is this? Not that classical music is horrible or anything, but it was like a classic score. Right. And it was terrible. It just was <laughs> awful. And I thought, you know, all the reading I've been doing like for years, I mean, I did black exploitation focusing mainly on the women for my master's thesis too. And for like, God, for years I've been um, researching it and everything I've run across, most people really give the music short shrift, like really short shrift. And I thought, well, I want to do something more with this. And I did, you know, I'm doing that more in my dissertation. And then of course, you know, when this is done, it's a whole book that just the music has to focus on that nobody's really doing. I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, for me, um, Obviously, Isaac Hayes' work on, on Shaft, you know, which, which uh, I, I can't remember. It won him an Oscar, didn't it? It was an Academy yeah. Award. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, I think the crowning achievement of, of a, an incredible stellar career for Curtis Mayfield is the Superfield, or Superfly con, uh, soundtrack. Right, right. But, but it's not just that. I mean, he did work for you know, Claudine. He did work for uh, mm-hmm. uh, Short Eyes, which is an amazing film. I mean, th- th- his, his work in soundtracks alone would would make him a stellar, but uh, that's, that's incredible. So, so who are you studying as far as soundtracks go? Um, weirdly enough, I'm uh-huh. not really focusing on the, the more well-known and popular soundtracks. Okay. And I have to mention them. So I do mention Isaac Caved and Shaft and I do mention um, Curtis Mayfield and Superfly. And I think Superfly, I guess, has a bit more uh, of a place in um, kind of latter part of the dissertation, but um, I kind of focus, weirdly enough, on space as a place. Yeah. Oh, oh, the the Sun Ra soundtrack. Yeah, and I've done yeah. a lot with um, the Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song uh, soundtrack with uh, Melvin Van Peebles, which is done with Earth, Wind, and Fire, which yep. many people just don't know. I mean, like yep. you know, and people who like really are into music know, yeah. but a lot of people are like Earth, Wind, and Fire because they were kind of not well known, the virtually unknowns doing that soundtrack. At that time, so I kind of focus on those um, because of the way that they kind of really shape the sonic space that shapes the movie in a way that's just indelible. Well, that was that, you know one of the questions I had for you is that 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 you see. I'm just kind of interested in how you think uh, the the soundtracks, and particularly popular music, creates this critical space for minority voices in particular. So, for you, how does this how does this operate? How do you think this through? Well, I kind of start. Um, with people who have uh, worked on music, black film scholars, and just kind of black cultural 
scholars like Baraka and Floyd Samuel who kind of talk about music being that kind of only holdover or vestige that um, black people, you know, stolen from Africa and then forced into slavery through the transatlantic slave trade were able to hold on to. Right. So, you know, they're not able to keep the drums because, you know, people started figuring out early on, okay, those drums are talking drums. They're doing something. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing, but we're going to take those. Right? right. So they're not able to keep the drums. They're not able to keep many of their actual instruments. So all they have are their voices, their bodies, the melodies that come with them and those lyrics um, and the stories. That's what you just really can't take the kind of um, non-material material, if you will. Right. The stuff that you can't kind of wipe away yeah. from someone. And so they take those um and they pass them down. I mean, we're even talking about people whose names are taken, whose names are changed. And so right. all you have sometimes is just the melody or just the beat. And they're able to kind of recreate and then create a new sounds that kind of fit their conditions here in America and then across the diaspora. Right. But I, I mainly focus on um, America because you got to kind of stay focused down with the dissertation. And right. so, you know, with them being able to kind of salvage those, um, those songs and, and salvage that particular kind of, cultural lineage um, and then be able to kind of turn into something new in America, it becomes a way that they shape their sonic space and just shape their kind of right to be, which is so perilous early on. Because mm-hmm. if you recall, like, you know, there's this thrust of Christian missionaries and the kind of forcing of Christianity and the kind of removing of indigenous religions from various tribes. Because again, if you don't understand it, you could be praying against us, you'd be doing some things or plotting, right? right? So we have to wipe all of those things away. And what happens is that people then kind of marry um, their different kind of sounds and lineages with these kind of new materials. Mm -hmm. And they create something again, a new that becomes very coded, polyvoiced, double voiced. Um, triple voiced even. So it sounds kind of innocuous if we think about some of the early slave spirituals, you know, or Joshua fit the battle of Jericho or mm-hmm. something, right? Those right. become stand-ins for all sorts of like, you know, alerts to the meetings or, you know, times when uprisings are going to happen or just kind of talking back to the to horrible suffering and sometimes just expressing joy right. of, of being alive. It's things that, you know, again, uh, blacks early on as slaves and then again, course, after Reconstruction and various times erupting throughout American culture, they weren't able to really express emotions. Like, it's hard for people to kind of wrap their head around that with popular music today, that just like being able to shout and say like body lyrics or moan or talk about an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend or desire was something that just wasn't possible unless it was coded very early on. So pop music kind of creates this space of like freedom and it does that and it keeps erupting throughout our like various decades from rock and roll and blues before it to like our crazy like 90s pop and especially with (laughs) hip hop, right? It just, it just enables that space that I think is a lot more racially inflected than people want to admit. It's, it's, it's great to hear that there's a scholar. It's not that you're taking the soundtrack seriously. It seems to be the primary object into these texts, not that you know you're going dis- to you're disavow visual analysis or any type of a, you know any type of a training that you would take that way. Is that is do you start there or is that something that you've you've come through the background and said like the only way to understand these things is to to start with the the music first or how, how do you operate? I feel like I came at it a bit through the back door right. um, because for me the first thing that well, caught my eye with these movies is how black they were, like with black exploitation. And remember, I use it as a case study. So for me, anytime black people are on the screen in cinema, there's just certain things that you can talk about 
that are happening with how they're able to occupy time and space. There's just certain things that happen or don't happen. I mean, if we think way back to race movies where we have like the first flooding of black people on screen kind of doing what they want to do. But since, you know, Michelle and Spencer Williams and others are really trying to duplicate classical forms sometimes, even though the stories are different, mm-hmm. but the aesthetics at a certain point are really trying to kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of ape Hollywood and not necessarily in a bad way. Right. Like I've read articles where like, oh, they're aping Hollywood and that's a bad thing. Well, no, like aesthetically, you know, classical Hollywood was the thing to aspire to right. at that time. So why not try to make your movies look like that? And plus movies that look like that got butts in the seats. Like this is a businessman making these movies. He wants to make money. Sure. So the things that are happening with time and space are not necessarily very different than what's happening with time and space. Um, and black people in like classical Hollywood movies. So it's not so much that they're relegated to the sidelines because the cast are all black, but how they're occupying time and space. Like, what do they get to do? Yeah, they're the heroes, but if they're fitting back into kind of a hetero patriarchal narrative at the end, what type of space have black people really occupied? What have they really gained access to? Right. right? Well, maybe not much. And black exploitation tries to, you know, I've seen it try to change that. Because the movies are so overtly and on purpose black, like everything about them. And so I came at it from, wow, the mise-en-scene is black. Like there's black posters on the wall. There's there's these fashions that are black and all these afros and all these bell bottoms and this slang that's happening, this vernacular speech. And then all this music that is making it just super black, just everywhere. And I thought it was really interesting. And then I noticed how, again, um, people weren't paying a lot of attention to the music, but they weren't paying attention also specifically to how the mo- the movies were making right. and shaping a particular blackness. I mean, people will say, you know, there's countless numbers of people who castigate the films as just like providing these terrible fantasies for black youth at the time that they're going to emulate. You know, there's the famous like co- coalition against black exploitation and surge and all these, all these like groups that get together with these fancy acronyms. That are basically like, we are anti-black exploitation and we're going to prove it to you. Like, to save our screens and save our children. Um, but there are dissertations that were done at that time by black students that literally went out and got quantitative, like, data. Like, asking people on surveys, all right, did you, did you watch Superfly and at least one other movie about black exploitation? What did you think? Do you think this is encouraging violence? Do you think, you know, they're asking the youth and it turns out that, you know, a lot of stuff that they were afraid of was really farcical. Like, any more than, you know, Transformers or, you know, Django Unchained or, or Captain America movies, right? The Avengers makes people now want to go out and, like, shoot them up and do stuff. It just doesn't. There's not that direct correlation. In any case, um, I kind of came at it through the black door. In the black door, I guess you could say, by seeing how that kind of music supported this kind of overtly blackness of time and space. It just kind of supported that in some really interesting ways and in a unique way that I hadn't seen being talked about before. Oh, that's great. And I'll tell you, um, the discussion about Ascension really makes me rethink a number of the, uh, I mean, essentially, it's, it's a direct invocation of Coltrane. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, you know, one of his one of his most famous works, and I think that there's something there about like a, all that MCA impulse stuff, that particularly the latter stuff of his career, where he is he, he's doing something uh, about vibrational uplift, and and, mm-hmm. uh, and I for, you forget that until you mentioned it. I'm like, yeah, of course that was that you know all those guys, Pharaoh Sanders, Alice mm-hmm. Coltrane, mm-hmm. You know, they're they're Archie Shep. They're all trying yep. to like, you know, it's the thing that honestly. I'm so pissed off about Ken Burns' jazz. Like, there's a lot that I like about it. 
but the way he sort of doesn't deal with the the late 1960s like somehow post bop is bad and that right, the, free right. stu- the free stuff's really ambitious it may not it's it's ambitious in a spiritual sense and, and right. you forget that that's the key here is to ascend and I, I somehow he never got that i don't i don't know but you know it really i've always found that that particular documentary offensive because it's well, part, part, frankly, because it's in the hands of Wynton Marsalis throughout the whole way, but in Stanley <laughs> Crouch, who I just can't, both of those, I mean, I like, I like Wynton okay, but it's, it's, it's this sort of neoconservatism that drives me nuts. Yeah, he, he is bent on that, too. He's very bent on that, because he, want, he wants to kind of preserve uh, a particular, well, a particular strain of jazz as a kind of classical form, and right. it's, he's very kind of rejecting of the kind of post-pop stuff, post-pop stuff as if, right, like as, as if it doesn't have a merit because it's wild, but it's experimental and it's it's meant to kind of shake you up. It's meant to do that. Yeah, um, right. I mean, yeah. if you if you, if you you hear uh, the, those records, and, I, and I'm thinking about it partially because of, um, I, you know, we, we remove it out of the context of its time. And I think this is, is particularly key for your work too, just sort of thinking about it is like, what would it mean to go to the movies to hear the movies, right? To to hear, yes. to literally hear all these black exploitation films. Yes. To hear like it, it must have been amazing if you think about it. Like you grow up and you have these shitty speakers, and you might have the super fly soundtrack. You might hear like you know Pusher Man on the radio, mm-hmm. but then to go into like a space that is just it's loud, mm-hmm. it's noisy. You, you're going to be with other other uh, black folk. You're going to be. Uh, it's going to be a totally different experience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I and I think about that like you know you're there to hear the movie as much as you are to see the movie. Yeah, I mean some people are go- of course are going to be going to the movies to see it multiple times to hear it to kind of groove out to the soundtrack and to talk back to the screen. I mean like you're in this place, this communal place with all these like other black people. And everybody's shouting, get him, Superfly, or watch right. out, Shaft, or come on, sweet back. And they're grooving, and they're singing along to the movies. Like, I think about asking my aunts and stuff and my mom about those experiences. And then reading, I think, it's Stephanie Dunn's book. Um, and she talks about that because she does a lot of interviews with, like, her sisters and her moms because she focuses on the black women in movies. And we're talking about this communal space where there's, again, talking back to the movies. There's dancing and singing with the soundtrack, you know, much like we might envision, like, Rocky Horror Picture Show or how, like, every black person always sings The Wiz. Right, right. Like right. The, you can't watch The Wiz without like singing The Wiz, and you imagine that people are singing along with Shaft and Superfly and all the other movies um, because it's shaping the space in like a particular way. And then how threatening that must have been for other people who felt like, oh my God. Um, I mean, because that's one thing I did want to make a point of is that when this sound happens, it shapes the space and codes it, codes it as black uniquely and particularly black in a way that it in itself is a protest because it's an assertion of being. And some people just can't take that. I mean, I think about little Jordan Davis. I got shot in Florida by this white dude who was like, hey, your music's too loud. Your music's too loud. And what that means is you don't have a right to time and space to be here. There's no place for you to be. This space is white space. It's my space. And your sound is encroaching upon it. So you think about how powerful that must have been to be in the theater and hear your music playing and like have radios playing, you know, this crazy, wonderful soul thumping music, this soul aesthetic, and it overpowering anyone saying you don't have a right to be here. Right. Right. It, it, exactly. And it also, yeah, if you if you know the, the it, I know this simply from, from uh, uh, 
Melvin Van Peebles' son, his his what badass, right? mm-hmm. where the the story is that the Black Panthers uh, saw that movie in uh, in Detroit, mm-hmm. and then went back multiple times. Right, right. And I think that that sort of moment of like just like re, it's not only reviewing, but it's re-listening. Right. And right. and like you said, it's like this space of com- of oral comfort where. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get to, I get to I get to be freely embodied in space. Mm-hmm. It's the same reason. Like if you think it's it's something that I've I've been thinking about for years with Soul Train, because mm-hmm. uh, you know it's you talk about and the Wiz. I've never really thought about it through the Wiz, but it makes sense. Like going back to these te- texts over and over right. uh, as a form of obsession. I mean, you know, in learning how to be black through them. Like uh, I know, like yeah. in Questlove. Talks about the biggest punishment that his his dad could give him was was saying no soul train. Right, right. <laughs> That's like awful, right? It's it's a terrible thing if you're thinking about the time that he lives in and wanting to kind of be in that space and in that moment. And it's jubilance, it's freedom. And again, like you know, I take it back, you know, kind of through like kind of slavery lineage, where where at different times in our country's history, black people are not allowed to show any emotion it's like you're too happy in the street why are you happy boy what you happy about what you do you too sad straight up your face boy you ain't got no right to be mad it's like there's no you have to have the kind of stoicism right and that's where the politics of respectability comes in too is that you have to have this veneer of like just placidity right, right. you can't like erupt because if you're too happy you didn't done something if you mad, you ain't got no right to be mad. You ain't nobody, right? So this kind of space of jubilance or of anger, you know, the blues or something that can give you kind of, or, or sadness or, or through any of the music. That's why I think, again, hip-hop is so instrumental because it, it's expressing the jubilance, the sexuality, the anger. Um, I think about, I guess, at closing too, Beyonce's song where she talks about the hot sauce in her bag. And I think about the appropriation that Hillary Clinton has done with that, saying, oh, you know, she's jocular, you're laughing, like, oh, I've got hot sauce in my bag, too. And she's connecting with the whole, I'm Southern, you know, i got the whole Arkansas thing coming on my Southern husband. But it's like, you know, Hillary, one thing you missed is that hot sauce is a bat. It's uh, a bat. She's a bat in her bag. And it's, to me, that's a connection. You know, it's a bat, like a Louisville slugger. And so when, she, when Beyonce has hot sauce in her bag, it's not just like our grandpas and stuff. Like my dad, he, he totally carried hot sauce in his car. Louisiana hot sauce. I would sprinkle it on like everything. Ah. So it's not just your aunties and stuff that right. would pull out with sauce. It's also like some of your aunties were packing. They had switchblades. They had guns. Or their purse was as heavy as a brick. And when you got out of pocket, you could get hit with that bag. Or when they were out in the street, they had the protection of that switchblade or that razor blade or that pistol. And that becomes like this kind of polyvocal moment where it's yeah. like, Hillary, when you say you got hot sauce, well, we know you do because, you know, you, you can start wars and stuff, too, and support ah. kind of state sanction <laughs> violence. Like, we know that. And you have no idea what you just said, Hillary. You right, have no right. idea that we know that you got hot sauce in your bag. And I think that's one of those beautiful ways that, you know, pop music creates this sonic space that everybody also is welcome in. Right? Hillary can come in and say she's got hot sauce. And we know that there's lots of other stuff that's connected to that. And sometimes it's just fun. Sometimes it's just your auntie. And sometimes it is just hot sauce, right? that's that thanks a lot for listening and thank you for nina cartier joan titus brian fateau and jeremy morris for talking with me and thanks again to the university of notre dame uh 
and their assistance in putting this together. Chris Becker for allowing me to do this. And if I didn't thank anyone else who needs to be thanked, well, thank you, and I owe you one. Take care. So uh, I hope you all really enjoy those four interviews. Really interesting stuff across the board. I love some of the cross connections that are made, such as the, you know, how much music is studied in the Canadian system. There were some really standout connecting ideas across all of those interviews. Yeah, it's good stuff. And uh, I hope that we got you all the way to Waldrug. Right. And your road trip across the great old U.S. of A. Well, and then think of all the conversation you now have to make with the people you run into at Waldrug about like Canadian college radio and MP3 formats and all that stuff. Because you know, because those people totally dig that stuff. Right. And blaxploitation. I bet there's a lot of people hanging out at Waldrug who would would love to hear about blaxploitation soundtracks. Yeah. Good stuff. We're going to uh, extend this invitation to other special interest groups or or, uh, ad hoc coalitions of folks who might be interested in, in... preparing some segments, so... Yeah, we especially really liked the idea of having multiple segments from different perspectives on a core topic. So if any of you would like to put something like that together, we invite any SIG, any caucus, any interest group, um, any particular program, bring it to us. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the August episode, which is going to be taken over by the MIME study SIG. Let's listen to a clip from it. Yeah, let's give that a listen. Oh, that's going to be so good. Can't wait. And I know our, our producer, Todd Thompson, really can't wait to work with that know, audio. He's, gonna, that's, he's really going to do some great stuff with that. That's going to be special. The moment Sean's interview is to die for. You're just, you're going to have to wait to hear it because, yeah. you know, it has to be heard to be believed. Yeah. Be prepared to listen closely. All right. August is right around the corner. So we'll hear you soon. Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame and the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we have to say goodbye to the DERF Fund. We won't be thanking the DERF Fund anymore. We've, Durf. we've used up all their money, but thank you, DERF. We love saying your name every oh, month. Durf. We also couldn't do this without the help from Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University. As well as the golden years of Todd Thompson, mime audio specialist in Austin, Texas. And thank you so much to Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois and Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester for their uh, great help on the podcast. As well as to the members of the Sound Studies, SIG, who brought us these terrific interviews. Tim Anderson, Jeremy Morris, Brian Fateau, Joan Titus, and Nina Cartier. All right. Happy driving. Carry on. Carry on.